Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. You are listening to Notion Capital Podcast FM, the voice of European enterprise tech. Next up is our show, Go to Market Heroes, with Andy and his amazing guests. And talking of being a hero. Hello, Paul here, back with Andy for a new episode of Go To Market Heroes. Now, Andy, before we proceed with the show, I've held off so far in our recordings, but I need to address, we need to address the elephant in the room, that intro song. That song was not only chosen by Andy, but also sourced by Andy. So spill the beans, Andy. What magic did you make happen to get us that song? And give us a little bit of context. Good question, Paul. So... You know as well as me, getting music and licensing music is a bit of a minefield, yeah? So (laughs) as this was coming together, I was thinking, you know, people want to hear from people who've been there and done it. And this title started to emerge, Go to Market Heroes. And then there was that that libel moment where my wife's cousin was in a band called Johnny Hates Jazz, and they had a hit called I Don't Want to Be a Hero. So I wrote to him and said, Mike, Mike Nacito is her cousin. Can you help me out? And he said, well... As a matter of fact, we just re-recorded that track and you can use it for the podcast series. So there you go. We're very lucky. Good timing wow. to get the track. Oh, my God. Yes, exactly. I was like, what, 12 when this was released? I think it's 87, the original one. So well, actually, I know that a year later, in 88, there was a Japanese artist, I forgot her name, that released a version in Japanese. And what I like is that she changed the title slightly, Hangyaku uh, no Hiro, which means rebellious hero. And I think that fits you very well, Andy, rebellious hero. So there you go, Andy. Anyway, back on track, pun intended, back on track. One of the lyrics in the song says, of hope and glory. So please, Andy, give us hope and introduce us to our glorious hero of the day. Thank you. So I am super pleased we have got Ingrid Burton joining us live from California. Ingrid is someone I've known for quite a few years now. We've had the opportunity to work together. And I'm thrilled because she has got great history. I've learned a ton from her. And she also probably is one of the, if not the most experienced marketing person I know. So I'm hoping she can share a bunch of that with us. And she's been at some amazing companies with not just amazing stories about product and go-to-market, but just amazing stories about the company, which, you know, hopefully she can share a little bit with us. Well, there will be a book someday. (laughs) (laughs) So if I was to cherry pick through your career, and I didn't realize, and this is a learning for me, the first company is listed as Megatech, a company I don't know, but it was a title, Software Engineer. So it sounds like you've been there, done it in terms of being a software engineer. That was my third company. Oh, was it? Oh. (laughs) But I was a software engineer, yes, early in my career. 10 years at Sun. I'd love to scratch on that one a little bit because fascinating company. I hear so much about Sun. SAP for two years. Hortonworks, where we met and you were the CMO. H2O.li, where we got the chance to work together a little bit as well. And then you are now CMO at Quantcast, another company, which seems to be doing phenomenally well. So, Thank you, Ingrid, for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've been kind of been looking forward to this conversation because I'm sure there's a few things that you're going to say. I'm like, wow, I never knew that. If we wound all the way back then, so software engineer, is that where it started? Yeah, no, I'm CMO now, right? Chief marketing officer. But I actually started off as a software engineer early in my career. Why? Because I have a degree in math and a bit of computer science in there. And as mathematicians graduated from the university, we got picked up as software engineers. So I had done some programming in college, but I really had to learn it on the job. And so about six or seven years 
into my career. I was doing hardcore software engineering. I was a programmer. Wow. I didn't know that. Honestly, genuinely. I thought you've been like a marketing professional forever. But as I say, careers are always that good mix of accidents and design. So what was the what was the path after that? What made you kind of go the way you did? Yeah. So I was a, you know, software engineer, developer, whatever you want to call it, of hardcore languages today. I mean, when I talk to computer scientists today, they're like, you did what? You did Fortran? Yes, I did Fortran. I did assembler language on PDP 11s and PDP 4s, which are, I think, in museums now. They may not even run. So I graduated super early from the university. I did it in three years. I look back and I go, wow, how did you do that? So I worked extremely hard. But when I got to Sun Microsystems in the late 80s, to the song, right around the time the song was released, in the late 80s, I was doing development of three-dimensional graphics languages, 3D graphics languages that people haven't heard of either, like figs and pecs and let's not go there. But anyways, I would have to present this new 3D graphics language to our customers. I was a developer and I would talk about, you know, grow shading and fong shading and some of the methodologies you have to use to make it look like a realistic image. And one day, so I'd present that to potential customers. They'd buy the systems and, you know, I'd go on and develop some more software. A really dear friend of mine now tapped me on the shoulder and said, you should be in marketing. And I said, (laughs) marketing, you people are idiots. I honestly said that. In my brain, I was like, I'm an engineer, you know, and I think I had blurted out because I'm very direct, you know, I would never go into marketing. (laughs) But he persisted, a couple of them persisted, the product marketers at Sun, and said, you know, you're really good at translating technical concepts into real plain English. So why don't you start in product marketing as an engineer, you could still code and we'll give you a product and you can start marketing that. And I knew nothing about marketing, zero. And I decided to go give it a shot and um, try it and not really thinking about where the future would lead at all. And always said, what's the worst thing that can happen? I can go back and be an engineer, right? If it doesn't work out and I hate it, I'll go back and be an engineer. But as it turns out, I absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved every part of it from competitive analysis, positioning and messaging, where was the market going to go? And then, you know, launching products and making a mark in the market. So I was hooked. I got to ask, so Sun, you were there 10 years in total. More than 10 years, actually. I had a little blip of service there when I went and had kids. (laughs) I had four kids. Mm -hmm. So went home after a few years and raised my kids, but then came back to Sun. So I think my overall service might be closer to 20 years. Whoa. Yeah. And I hear so many stories about Sun. I'm really positive things about the culture, what it was like to be there, kind of the the way that I felt they were kind of very influential in working practices and messaging and kind of their cultural side. Just, I'd love to get a glimpse of what, what was it like in the kind of heyday of Sun? So when I first joined Sun, we were at a half a billion. So Sun Microsystems, right? The full name. Some people may go, oh, Sun. They might think that the Daily Sun or the Daily Mirror, whatever. <laughs> By the way, there's a story there. We did get sued for the use of Sun, but we settled. Yeah, that's another <laughs> UK story for another day. But basically, I started when the company was a half a billion. And in the first year that I was there, we grew to a billion. We doubled from a half a billion to a billion. And we had a billion dollar party and everybody went. But the, the culture was so collegial. I mean, it was just this culture of we're here up against the giants. And the giants at the time, there were about 60 different computing companies that are now since gone or not quite clear where they are, but 
you know, folks like Tandem or Unisys or Honeywell, Apollo, DEC, Digital Equipment Corporation. We were up against all of them. And there was this, we we're all joining together to take on the giants. We're the underdog. We're going to take on the giants and disrupt the market and do something that nobody else has done. And that feeling of Sun Microsystems and Sun in general was a culture that all of us thrived in. And we worked harder than anybody else. And we put a number of them out of business, including digital. We would take credit for that. And Apollo, who got bought by HP. So, I mean, we took on every major giant. And our our CEO, our founder, Scott McNeely, who's also now a dear friend of mine, he just had that rallying. You know, he'd stand up on the tables in the cafeteria every Friday afternoon during our beer bus and just like rally us and tell, you know, look, we're moving up. We're moving up and look at how many wins we've got. I mean, it was just an incredible ride in the early days there at Sun. And it never lost that culture of, you know, the fairness, the equity, the integrity. We had a huge integrity. And I really do think that was led by Scott, who was like, we're never going to lie. We're always going to tell the truth. We're going to tell it like it is. And he was very blunt. And uh, we're going to tell the market and we're going to bring the market along with us. We're here to help people, help our customers, and help them be successful. So it was a, a sense of community that Sun instilled in not only in the company culture, but in the culture that surrounded Sun, the big community that surrounded Sun. I hear that. There are some companies where people just talk so fondly of being there. You know, They don't talk about the money. They don't talk about the success. They just talk about being there, mm-hmm. You know, kind of how much they enjoy just being a part of, of the whole story. I mean, you've got a great open source background as well. Did that start at Sun? Was Sun one of the people that inspired that? Yeah, my open source background started at Sun in the late 90s, right? So 10 years later, I'm actually working for Bill Joy, who is another founder of Sun. And he had been in the lab, Sun Labs, which is the who's who of computer scientists and renowned people, including, you know, Ivan Sutherland and Bob Sprawl. These people created the world. They had about 100 of the best data scientists and and researchers in Sun Labs. And Bill Joy was part of that. And then he created what he called Aspen Smallworks, which was a skunk works inside of Sun. And I had the opportunity to be a part of that with new technologies after Java was introduced, new technologies like Genie and Juxta. And in order to get traction for these new technologies, we decided to open source those. So Richard Gabriel, who was part of the labs, was kind of a researcher, and other people in that group were researchers around licensing models and how are we going to open source. And we did. We started open sourcing many technologies at Sun and ultimately Java and Solaris as well. But we were big proponents of open source as a ways and means to get the community around you to not only adopt the technology, but to take it even further, right? It wasn't about making money, as you said. It was about getting wide-scale adoption. Money would follow and always did. But it was about getting wide-scale adoption and grassroots movements going amongst developers in order to really get traction of new technology. And that's still the case today with many open source companies. I was going to ask you because I don't think the playbook for open source would have existed then. I think we were one of the early pioneers. And at the same time, I think Linux was starting as well. So we were. it was, it was all kind of unfolding. But by the way, it unfolded decades before with BSD Unix, so Berkeley Unix, right, where, you know, Bill Joy, again, that was where he came from. Wikipedia was starting at that point, too. 
So it was really, you know, we were pioneering it. We were trying things, trying community managers. How do we do outreach? Giving away software. I mean, basically, software is the linchpin there. You have to give it away for free under specific licensing requirements. And that was always the debate. What's the license? You know, should we use GPL? Should we use Apache, BSD? You know, it was all the MPL, CPL. You know, you just go on and on with the licensing and Creative Commons as well that started under Larry Lessig over at, I believe, Stanford. So it was a lot of pioneering and trial and error and what works and what doesn't work. But really, you wanted the community to be part of what you were doing. And so you you tried different things and you listened to the community. The community was what made the open source project so successful. Back to the marketing side. So we've got over the, do I want to be in marketing? <laughs> but then I was marketing for technology, right? And I'm kind of curious. And one of the things I'm always thinking is, you know, Companies of old, some of these big corporations would invest a lot in their people. And some of that's kind of gone away now, you know, because some of these big companies, as you said, don't exist anymore. Who invested in you? Who was the person that kind of shaped and helped you in terms of that marketing career? That original guy that tapped me on the shoulder. He's now at HP Enterprise, Neil Godre. He became my manager, my mentor, my biggest cheerleader, even when we didn't work together. I would go to him with ideas and just ask him, you know, what do you think? What do you think? And he he was a big wig at Sun. So he took the time to kind of nurture me. But, you know, there were so many people along the way, the CEOs, Jonathan Schwartz and, and Scott McNeely as well at Sun. You know, I just learned so much from just watching them, just watching them in action. What made them, you know, I always looked at people and said, what can I do better? What are they doing that's different? And so just really watching and learning from the best. And when did you get that first CMO title? That's actually after Sun. So um, Sun got bought by Oracle. And two years prior, I believe, I got promoted to the CEO staff. And I was considered head of marketing at Sun. But I didn't get the title, which was a disappointment. But because the company was going through an acquisition, you know, I didn't get that title. My first CMO title was at Plantronics after Sun. So um, in the 2010 downturn, if you recall, there weren't that many jobs. So I took the Plantronics position and really loved that as well. Different industry, different space, all about communications. And I rebranded the company and started a developer program there and did all sorts of interesting things there as well. I got to ask, because to me, out of all the professions, I think marketing has evolved probably the most. And I say that because it, it seems like a really broad church now. There are so many facets to marketing. And I'm curious kind of how you think directionally marketing is going now, because the more I talk to different people who are doing through different go-to-market motions, be it through open source or financials or traditional top-down enterprise selling, you know, their marketing team seems to all of a sudden get very big very quickly because there's so much to cover. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on kind of the evolution of marketing over time? It has changed dramatic. Marketing has changed dramatically over the 20 or 30 years I've been in marketing dramatically from, you know, it's not just about brand, it's about demand, but it's also about community, right? And so there's various facets in there. And then you'll get these people asking you, well, what are you, what are you really good at? You know, but there's a whole breadth from brand and communications and demand generation and the funnel and digital marketing and channel marketing, product marketing, the list goes on and on. And I just net it out to three things, but the evolution is there. It's brand, demand, and community, right? You got to create the brand of the company and the, build the reputation and everything that ensues with that. You've got to drive demand and help the salespeople sell. 
through integrated activities. And then you have to build a sense of community, whether it's partners, customers, employees, mm. you know, they're all important constituents for building the brand and, and helping the company gain traction in the market. We talked about Hordeworks and H2O.ai. I see a lot of terms like developer-led growth, product-led growth, these kind of bottoms-up organic sales motions. You've lived this a few times. What do you think is really good kind of way of thinking about that when you are, because people listening to this could be very young open source companies. What's the things that make you successful? Yeah, so open source, both Hortonworks and H2O were open source companies. And and that's been a big part of my career. And, and I gravitate towards open source companies and admire a lot of the open source companies out there. So open source is a bit different, right? You know, it's you're going after an audience of your community constituents. So you need to build community programs. You need to understand what drives the community, what helps the community thrive, whether it's you know, donating another piece of software or, you know, helping them become successful. So community marketing is essential to an open source company. That's one thing I think that some open source companies miss. They miss that. I don't call it a trick. It's a necessary must have. Along the way, you also need to make money, right? So open source companies need to understand that they have to offer something that's unique and different in order to monetize that open source effort, right? Because you're not nonprofits, right? We're for-profit companies, whether you're Hortonworks, which is now Cloudera, or H2OAI, you're a for-profit company, and you have to understand that fine balance. So in marketing, you've got to drive the demand around the product, around the capabilities, around what you can monetize, but you also have to nurture that community and be very mindful that whatever you do, it's always that tension of, okay, well, we can't disrupt the community. The community's got to thrive because without the community, you can't monetize. So it really is, it's a fine balancing act. And I'm telling you, there's been debates in the organizations I've been a part of, whether it was at Sun or Hortonworks or H2O, how far do you go to help the community, but also how does the community help you monetize? Because without a monetization strategy, there is no open source effort because who's going to, who's going to fund that? Mm -hmm. Right. So that's the question the community has to ask themselves. They have to understand that these open source companies are not nonprofits, they're for profit, and they also have the right to monetize their intellectual property or their donated source code or what have you. They have to be able to exist. And any thoughts on, you know, I, I like you have been in many meetings where people talk about support models, open core, pure open source, API, you know, there's all these flavors of flavors of flavors now that have kind of developed over time. Any preferences on any of those? Any thoughts as to like, hey, if I was doing this again now, I'd probably gravitate one way or the other? Yeah, it's just so many models, right? There's hybrid open source and, and companies like Cloudera, who now bought Hortonworks, is doing, right? They talk about a hybrid open source model. I think that's closer to the pin of where you need to be. But I think the interesting part is I really think it depends. You know, people hate that answer. But unfortunately, that's the answer you have to, you have to understand your company, your community, your potential customers, the market itself, the partnerships that you're creating, the entire ecosystem. And then you can craft a model that works, but it's not one size fits all. I think that's a fallacy to think that one size fits all. And also to go, oh, well, you know, Red Hat did it, so we can do it, right? Red Hat being the most successful open source company on the planet. And of course, they ultimately got bought by IBM. 
but it took them 20 years to get to, you know, a $2 billion status, I believe. And so you have to really understand the dynamics of your market, your customers, your community and adjust. And what may work for one company may not work for the other. And so at like H2O, we had an open source framework called H2O. And then we also had a monetization strategy on top where we had, you know, we called it a closed source product, but it was really an enterprise software model where we had a product that utilized some of the H2O open source componentry, but it was also in our competitors' products. So that's okay. So the best product to market will win. And that's really just that worked for H2O.ai may not work for every company. So I see the emergence now of companies that are almost priding themselves on no Salesforce and doing real bottoms up product led growth and kind of doing that developer adoption. Whereas I look at companies that I've known and been involved in and they've had they've had that, but in tandem they've had the bottoms down more traditional enterprise to help them scale and get those bigger deals and get more to the Fortune one hundred. Do you think you still need both? Yeah, I think you you should do both. So you're right. I think you need to have an enterprise kind of mindset, enterprise selling mindset, but you can also do the community bottoms up. I used to call it this. I still call it the squeeze play. You got the bottoms up influencers. Those are the developers and the people using the technology. And the very top, you've got the, you know, the C-suite at a Fortune 1000 company that has to make an investment, right? They have to make an investment in your technology. So you need to influence both and you have to do it through influencer programs at the Fortune 1000 level, but at the developer or the, you know, user level, you have to win their hearts and minds. So I call it the squeeze play. When you have that squeeze play working beautifully, it works and you make money. Squeeze play. And the community thrives. I call it the squeeze play. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I haven't heard that before. Bottoms up and top down, right? You cannot ignore the top down. You have to reach, if you're an enterprise software, you've got to reach the C-suite. You have to reach the C-suite, whether it's a business user or the CIO. Don't disregard the CIO and the IT organization. They are fundamental to getting new software into the enterprise more than ever, more than ever. And um, in the old days, maybe 15 years ago, we used to think the CIO would go away. Well, guess what? They're not. They're still here and they're stronger than ever. And the reason they are is they're protecting their enterprise from malicious software, cyber attacks, you know, all sorts of things. So they play a role in the enterprise, in the enterprise software mix. So don't ignore the CIO and the IT department. It's really important to go partner with them if you're looking to sell in. I would agree with that. And I've got mixed feelings on shadow IT as well. Uh, shadow IT is like shadow marketing. <laughs> Big badness. <laughs> I thought you might say that. So let me ask you a, a fully loaded question here, okay? So one of the things I see in companies that kind of don't fulfill their potential or go off the rails a little bit is that the relationship between marketing and sales isn't working for whatever reason. Yeah. And by the way, I say that fully smiling because all salespeople are expert marketeers, of course. You know, they know everything about marketing. They're very quick to tell marketing what to do. So <laughs> just curious about in your role now, because, you, you know, you're in a thriving, growing organization. How do marketing build that effective relationship with sales? What's that built on? Well, first of all, I'll say one thing about everybody's a marketer. Everybody's a marketer. Everybody listening on this call, whether they're in marketing or not, believes that they know the best ad campaign they've ever seen. They know how to do it better than anybody else because we all have an opinion, right? So we all have an opinion and everybody knows what's good and what's not good, but it works for you or not, whatever. So everybody in, in sales 
thinks they can be a better marketing person, but I'll tell you, no marketing person ever thinks they're going to be a better salesperson. It's a different skill set. So I tell my marketing teams, regardless of size of company, whether it's a Series A or a public company, you need to be best friends with your sales counterpart. And if you're not, you're not going to succeed. It's that simple. So Andy, I think the reason you and I got along so well is I did see that. And, you know, I even visited you in your London offices when I was on vacation once because I wanted to see what the, the operations look like. And and I think that's really the important part is what can marketing do to help sales sell? And I talk about that all the time to my marketing teams. You are here to help sales sell. And if you're not here to do that, then, you know, go find some place where they don't care about sales because that would be a nonprofit. So um, back to the nonprofit versus for-profit, you know, I admire salespeople because they bring it home every day. Every salesperson is important in the equation because if we do not have sales, we do not have a company. They sell what we build as a company. And that is ultimately why marketing has to understand that they have to partner with sales. And so it is about meeting them where they are, right? Meet with the salespeople regularly. Listen to them. Find out what they need. Sometimes I've walked into companies and said, okay, they all they all kind of like start, you know, complaining about marketing the minute I walk in. I go, great. So give me your top 10 list of things you want us to do. And I'll knock it out immediately. It's simple things like we just need competitive analysis on our top competitor. We haven't gotten that. Great. Here it is next week, right? We just need a corporate deck. Great. Here it is. You know, we just need you to get out there and have some ads running. Great. Here it is. How hard is it to, to say yes? It's not that hard. So I always say yes to my sales teams within reason because they're the feet on the ground. They're the feet on the street. They're the ones doing the hard work of getting customers to buy. And if they can get a customer to buy, marketing lives another day. I saw that, by the way. I remember when you came to visit the office. I remember that when you came in. You know, I always joke that there's two things a salesperson should complain about, more leads and more product. Yeah. Anything else is noise. Yeah. <laughs> so that's fine. And all the time you're performing, you can complain. I need more leads and more products. That's okay. Right. The other thing that they don't see, though, is, and I, I see this now, companies are earlier and earlier, kind of A-B stage, thinking about category design and how do I become a market of one and how do I think about carving out my differences you know do you think there's a time a company should do that and a way they should approach it because it seems to be very much on trend at the moment it's been a bit of a trend for a few years now category creation you know you hear that word all the time and CEOs will say to me I I need to create a category category creation and I don't think it's as simple as that I think it's That's big part of the brand. What is your category? What market are you serving? But sometimes it's so simple, it's looking you in the face, right? Don't overcomplicate it. So I think to say like at H2O, we just said who we were. We're an open source AI machine learning company. What category is that? AI machine learning. What category is that? AI machine learning. Do we have to create a new category? I didn't think so, right? Um, So sometimes it's very simple. What business is, you know, like an Oracle in? primarily database, but they're enterprise software, right? Why create a new category? So I think overthinking that can get into a lot of swirl and churn and no forward progress. And sometimes you stumble upon it. One of the most brilliant jobs I saw in category creation was when MongoDB filed their S1 to go public. So MongoDB had the most simplest S1 filing I have seen to date, where they said, we're a modern data platform modern data platform. 
And I'm like, oh my gosh, why didn't I think of that, right? It's a data platform. It's a modern one because who wants the old one? You want the modern one. So I learned from watching that. I, I've never met the CMO there, but she's brilliant. And I think she's at another company now. But you have to admire and learn from great work. Simplify things. Don't overcomplicate it. Sometimes it's just staring you right in the face. So category creation is important. Lead generation, as you said, is super important. But making sure the salespeople are following up on leads is also super important. Because I remember you and I worked at one company together and you're like, stop sending over leads. We can't even deal with them. No one's ever heard that except for me. And I appreciated that, Andy, because we hadn't built out, we were an early stage company. We hadn't built out the entire sales force to handle the leads being generated. But anyways, back to category creation. I think it's important, but don't overthink it. Sometimes you're going to, you're going to stumble upon it when you least expect it. And the other thing is figure out who you are and what you do is super important. That's more important than category creation. Who are you and what do you do? What's your simple one-liner statement about your company? That's a good point. I'm company X. Oh, I've never heard of company X. What do you guys do? Can you say it in one sentence that your grandmother or your mother can understand? If they can, then you win. And that's not category creation. That's simplifying, you know, really crisp, clear messaging about your company. Just to finish that thought process as well, one of the things I've noticed is startups, kind of series A, series B, always rush to hire their first VP of sales. They're very keen to go get that person and then kind of linger on hiring their head of marketing. You know, it kind of comes a little bit after the fact and it just feels a bit backwards to me. You know, I don't know whether you see that in the market. It almost feels like sometimes marketing should come first to define what is the problem? What are we solving? Who are we? What market are we going after? What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. (laughs) I see it time and time again. But Series A companies, early stage company, let's just call it that. The founder already has a good idea of what he or she wants to do, right? They know what problem they're trying to solve. They believe they know what problem they're solving and whom they're serving, right? Who we are and what we do. They know that because that's why they started the company. So early stage companies, if you have a really smart founder or set of co-founders, and a good set of advisors, you can get by without a VP of marketing. Because really, what are you bringing the marketing person in for? Some of that can be outsourced in the early days. And then kind of maybe in a Series B company, really look for a VP of marketing. So in A, I would say, you know, the founder probably knows or the co-founders know. But again, be very clear and crisp about who you are and what you do and why you're doing it, right? So that's something I just advise companies to do. And don't convolute it with technobabble technology speak. That's a category killer. <laughs> but um, I think VP of sales or a salesperson is really important to test the market, to see what's going to stick. And then maybe bring on you know an advisor that can do marketing or a consultant and just see how it goes. And then when you really have your traction, your first couple of wins then you should probably hire your VP of marketing. And the VP of marketing has to understand the product. I think that in tech companies, for sure, you know, you need people that can grok the product, so to speak, right? They get the product, they understand the product. If they don't understand the product, what are they marketing? I would really look for somebody that could understand your product. And if you haven't been able to explain it to them, then that's when you probably need to refine your messaging to be very simple. No, that's a good point. That's a good way of thinking of it, actually. This is great stuff, and I'm sure the audience is going to get a ton of little nuggets out of this. But I was going to ask you, you still seem still so passionate about this, still so passionate about tech, still love marketing. 
still get up at crazy times in the morning to go get on planes and do crazy things when we can travel again. So what are you, what are you excited about? What do you see out there? What trends, what companies, what people, anything you admire, any, anything you see and you think, wow, that's kind of cool. Well, I just love tech, right? So marketing or engineer, for me, it's, it's about what is the technology going to do for us people, right? I've been a technology marketer my whole career or after my engineering days. So I got to get excited about the technology and what it can do. And then I love seeing the flywheel effect of making money, right? So some of the companies I admire, I mean, I just said MongoDB. I'm, you know, pleasantly surprised how well they're doing. I think it's great, right? The new modern data platform company succeeds. Other companies like Twilio, I'm a big fan of Twilio, which people didn't understand and they probably underestimated but Twilio is hugely successful, has a developer community and a monetization strategy. So they did it right. They really did do it right. And I had the opportunity to talk to their CEO a couple of times a few years back. I'm a big fan of Twilio. And I'm always like looking at their quarterly results and going, Twilio, there they go again. They're doing great. Zoom, of course. Look what Zoom did for all of us during this pandemic. I knew about Zoom back in 2013 my team actually used Zoom early, early on because it was a free video conferencing service that allowed a lot of people to communicate very simply together. And so I've loved seeing the rise of Zoom just really take off. And what did they do? They weren't first to market. This is a classic great example of, you know, Eric did WebEx. He was VP of engineering at WebEx. He left Cisco WebEx because he wanted to simplify the product And how many people are using Zoom versus WebEx or Microsoft or any of the other solutions out there? I would say the majority of the people, I mean, I use Zoom all all the time. And it's a fantastic product, right? It's simple to use. My mother can use it. My family uses it. Everybody uses Zoom. So they kept the simplicity of the product. They're making money. They have a free version, right? The 45 minutes for free. But if you need more than 45 minutes, you got to pay. So what better way to package that up? And it's just a brilliant solution. So I admire them tremendously just from knowing where they came from back in 2013 and how they simplified the technology to benefit all of us people. So that's what gets me excited, right? Seeing a company like that take off, I think they were already taking off before the pandemic and now they've established their position in the market. They're a leader, right? And what's their slogan? It's about keeping you happy keeping you happy. It's not about tech, but they're in the video conferencing space and and they disrupted giants that were there years ahead of them. They disrupted them by simplifying the offering and making it simple for regular people, students, grandmothers, mothers, professionals to use the same product. What an amazing success story that is. That is my um, weekly family quiz platform as well. So we we, <laughs> we get everybody on there because you're right. It's the one thing that everyone's like, yeah, I can use Zoom. You know, so they all get on there. No problem whatsoever. Zoom is just click. It works. It's just so simple. Yeah. Well, on that, I will wrap it up there. But thank you again for coming on. Thanks for bringing the energy, the insights. You've got a ton of experience. You've been at some great companies. I think people listening to this are going to get a ton of little insights in terms of, you know, their choices in companies, careers, their growth paths, etc. So thank you so much for sharing. Well, thank you, Andy. It's been a a lot of fun. And uh, I'm sure we could have gone on for hours, but we don't have that much time. (laughs) I think we could. Thank you, Ingrid. Thanks. This is the point where Paul says, oh, I forgot to press record. (laughs) 